All right, welcome back to another session in the listener's commentary on the book of Galatians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Galatians 3, 15 through 22. And just to make sure we are tracking with the Apostle Paul, let's review the context so we understand exactly where we're at in the letter. Here in chapter 3, Paul is really diving in deep into his argument for the uh, supremacy of faith and the supremacy specifically of faith in Christ and really giving the law a demotion, not in a bad sense, but putting it in its proper place. And so he's entering into that in force here in chapter 3. And so far in chapter 3, this is what Paul has argued in the first five verses of the chapter, 3, 1 through 5, Paul argues from the experience of the Galatians, making the point that they had received the Spirit by faith in Jesus as Messiah, not by obeying the Old Testament law. And then in chapter 3, 6 through 14, the previous section, right before the section we're going to look at, Paul makes the point that the entire story of the Bible, that is the story of God's rescue operation, begins with and focuses on a man by the name of Abraham, and God made a promise to Abraham, and that promise was believed by Abraham, and thus Abraham was declared righteous, justified, put in a right relationship with God by virtue of faith. And so, Paul says, all of those who are truly of the family of Abraham are mar marked by the same kind of faith. He contrasts that with the effect of the law and really, as we said, makes a point that was largely agreed upon by the Jews in his time and day that uh, whereas Abraham received the promise by faith, the law didn't bring the promise, didn't bring the blessing. The law instead brought a curse, and it brought that curse because uh, the Jews, the Israelites of the Old Testament, the Jews of Paul's day, they knew they had disobeyed the law, they had broken the covenant, and thus they had suffered the curses of that covenant, and that curse had not been lifted in their own day, as was evidenced by Roman occupation and by God's Shekinah glory not returning to the temple. And so the promised Abraham brought a blessing, the law brought a curse. Now where we're at in the letter and where where Paul is going to go next is he's got to deal with, well, then how does the priority of Abraham and the promise and faith and the blessing it brought, how does all of that fit then with the law in the flow of the Old Testament story? In other words, what's the place of the law and how does it fit with the promise to Abraham and the point Paul's arguing? That's where Paul goes in the section we're going to look at in this specific uh, part of the letter. So let's begin. In verses 15 through 18, Paul emphasizes the priority of the promised Abraham over against the law of Moses. He does so by beginning with a, an analogy from everyday life. Think in terms of a last will and testament, right? That's really the analogy Paul is using. Let me read verse 15. It says this, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. In other words, let me give you a everyday human example, the way it works among people. That's what he's getting at. Even though, he says, it's only a man's covenant, a human covenant, yet when it's been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. And so here's an everyday example from the way people relate to one another. He's thinking probably primarily in terms of what we would call a last will and testament. 
That's the way this word covenant was used in the Greek and Roman world of Paul's day. And it probably has that sense here, although it could just be a general covenant. This is when people make a covenant agreement, once it's established and ratified in our language, notarized, signed, sealed, delivered, right? Once that happens, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. It's it's solid. It's sealed. It's done, right? That's the idea. So he sets that up. Here's this last will and testament, and it's there. Well, then he goes on from that and draws out the point he wants to make with relationship to the promise to Abraham and the law of Moses. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. So here is this covenant with Abraham that was made to Abraham and to his seed. Paul is going to draw out an implication from the word seed. Notice what he says. He he, referring to the Old Testament story about Abraham, says he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, to Christ. Now, let's just clarify a few little details here. The word seed in both Hebrew, Greek, and in English is what's called a collective noun. That means the singular can refer to many seeds or it can refer to one seed. It has that function. You, you don't say seeds, right? We would say, where's the seed? And we're referring to a whole packet of seeds that we are going to plant to plant corn. Well, the same was true in the Greek language as well as the Hebrew language that this is referencing from the Old Testament. It's a collective noun. And Paul knows that. He's, he's not stupid. He knows that seed could be plural and seed could be individual. And so why does he focus on the individual, even though the promise to Abraham said, your seed, your offspring, your descendants, if you translate that way, are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Well, it's because Paul is reading the entire Bible as one giant story, and we need to make sure we we understand what he's getting at. So God speaks to Abraham, makes the promise that um, his seed is going to be like the, the stars in the sky, the sand of the seashore. Well, even in the flow of Genesis, God narrows it down to one, not Ishmael, but Isaac. It's through Isaac your your seed is going to be named. That's Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac, your seed is going to be named. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. Same is true with Jacob. Not Esau, but Jacob. And so the line of promise is going to be very case-specific, and it's not going to be all of Abraham's descendants. It's going to be through one specific line of promise, lineage of promise. So in your mind, picture a, a line. The beginning of the line is Abraham, The initial fulfillment of the seed promise is Isaac, right? So he is the first seed of promise that is given to Abraham. And then from Isaac, you got to go to Jacob. And it's not Esau, but Jacob. So the line of promise now goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Well, from Jacob, it balloons out into the entire nation of Israel. So this line of promise now, it takes up the entire nation of Israel. But if you read the Old Testament story, you realize that Israel, as the people of promise, become part of the problem because they break the covenant, and thus they suffer the curses of the covenant, and they have gone away into exile. All of that's very important, and all that's right in the center of Paul's mind, as you remember the preceding context about the curse of the law. 
And so the promise now is going to get narrowed down. And when you read some of the Old Testament prophets, they, they actually speak this way, like Israel is going to be narrowed down to one, to a descendant of David who is going to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming one. And that's what Paul does here. And so the line of promise goes from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Israel, to the ultimate fulfillment of the seed promise, that is Messiah, that is Christ. The word Christ just means Messiah. And so Messiah, Christ, is the ultimate seed of Abraham, the ultimate Israelite, the true son of David, the true son of Jacob, the true seed of Abraham. And so the promise is narrowed down to him. Now, Paul goes on then in verse 17 and says, here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, the law, and here's really the point he wants to get to, the law, which came 430 years later, doesn't invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God. So in the analogy, once a covenant or a last will and testament is established, is ratified, it's given, signed, sealed, and delivered, you don't set it aside and get rid of it. And so the law, which came 430 years after the promise to Abraham, the covenant to Abraham, it's not going to invalidate that covenant with Abraham that was previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. And so the law's job is not to overtake the promise, not to replace the promise. It came later um, than the promise, and thus it doesn't invalidate the promise. The promise preceded the law in time and thus precedes the law in priority. And so Paul ends this first little section by saying in verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise, right? If, if it's based on the law, which came later, well, then it's not based on the promise that God gave to Abraham. However, Paul says, God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And so law and promise stand a little bit in contrast. The law is something that uh, isn't technically a promise. God says, do this, and I will do that. If you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. It's not a promise. But with Abraham, it was purely a promise. God said, I'm going to do this for you. Abraham believed God's promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so God granted the seed promise to Abraham as a promise, and Abraham believed it, and, and it wasn't based on law. Now, this all raises a very important question. All right, if the promise is more important in priority, and if that's the way God intended to fulfill his rescue operation for the world, and the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is Messiah, um, then what's the whole point of the law? Why the law in the first place? What was the purpose of the law after all? That's where Paul goes next in Galatians 3.19. And so notice verse 19 begins with that question. Well, why the law then? And Paul is going to explain the purpose of the law. This is very important for us understanding what is the purpose of the Old Testament law, how we should relate to it today, and what its significant was. And so, why the law then? Well, here's what Paul says. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through the agency of angels by a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. All right, there is a boatload packed into verse 19, so let's just break it into some pieces so we understand 
Paul's understanding of the law. Notice the first thing. Why the law? Well, it was added. And so again, keep that line of promise in mind. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Messiah. That's the line of promise. And now picture the law being tacked onto, added onto that line. That's the way you need to picture it. So the law is a add-on to the promise, all right? And it comes in 430 years later, so you put the law beginning in Moses and uh, going to Messiah. So from Moses to Messiah, the law was added on. And he says it was added onto the line of promise because of transgressions. What does he mean by that? Well, that word because there is not the normal word for because. It's karen in Greek, which has more the sense of to point out or to enunciate. And in uh, Paul's teaching, you see this in Romans chapter 5, and in Paul's thought world, sin existed before the law. But what the law did was give sin a name, it identified it, it labeled it, so that it moved from just being general sin to becoming transgression. It pointed out transgressions. What the law did was uh, name sin for what it was, so that now there were specific boundaries that could be crossed, and hence it became transgression. That word transgression refers to the crossing of a specific boundary, to step out of bounds, to break a known law, a known instruction. And so the law was added in order to point out transgressions, to move sin from being some vague general sense of wrongdoing to very specific. So the law was added in order to point out transgressions. That's the first thing Paul says. And then Paul describes how the law was given, and his point seems to be that the law was given in a way that was inferior to the way the promise was given. So he says the law was given later, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. Now, um, in Deuteronomy, it hints at that the angel's coming when the law was given. Deuteronomy 33.2 says he came with myriads of his holy ones, hinting at the idea that angels were involved in the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, makes that specific by saying, if the word spoken through angels provided unalterable, and in fact in Acts chapter 7.53 says you received the law as ordained by angels. And so angels were involved in the giving of the Old Testament law, so it was ordained through angels. And then he says, by the agency of a mediator, meaning Moses. And so God spoke to Moses, Moses delivered the law to the people. God did not speak directly to the people as God spoke directly to Abraham. And so the law was given in a way that was somewhat different from and seemingly inferior to the way God gave the promise to Abraham. That seems to be his point. And then he says the law was added because of transgressions through angels and a mediator until the seed should come. Notice that. He's already talked about the seed, and so we've clarified that, the seed being Messiah. But until the seeds should come. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the law was always intended to be temporary. It had a short-term temporary job to do from Moses to Messiah. And so it was only intended to be in force and to be given until the, the fulfillment of the seed promise should come, namely Messiah. And, and 
So he says, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, that's kind of Paul's initial statement of why the law. It had a specific job to do, enunciate transgressions, for a specific time period until the seed should come. Then in verse 20, Paul says uh, a statement that is very, very confusing, and commentators and scholars aren't really sure exactly what he means. Let's read it. He says, Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. That's the translation. It's not super clear what Paul is getting at in that verse. One scholar, J.B. Lightfoot, from a couple generations ago said in his day even there were 250 to 300 interpretations of this verse. It's just not 100% clear what Paul means when he says, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Literally what it says is um, a mediator is from one or for one, whereas God is only one. That last phrase, God is only one, is certainly a allusion to and a reflection of the standard Jewish confession, Hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And so that's an agreed upon point, but what is he getting at in the context of his flow of thought? Not totally clear. Here's what I think. And this is, again, there's all these different views, but here's what I think, trying to read it in context. I think this has to do with the difference between a promise and the way the law was given. Um, a promise, in our case, the specific promise to Abraham, is from one. It's from one person. It's from God directly to Abraham, and it's from one. I promise, and I promise to whatever, and God promises to Abraham, Abraham believes it. Whereas the law came from God through angels, to Moses, to the people. There was a whole lot of parties involved, and then it came with responsibilities for all parties. If you will, then I will. That's not the way the promise worked. I think that's the sense of what Paul is getting at, although the way he words it is very unclear, and it's not 100% certain what he's getting at. Um, nevertheless, the point does seem to be that in some way, the way the law was given is inferior to the way the promise was given. And thus, Paul then goes on in verse 21 to say, well, wait, 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 hold on. Let's think this through. So far, Paul has said, well, the inheritance is by the promise, not by law. The law is later and it's secondary to the promise. The way it came was inferior to the promise. But Paul doesn't want to prove too much. And so he kind of backs off now and raises a question in verse 21 and says, well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? That is, is the law bad? Does the law go against or work against the promise God made to Abraham? And his answer is, may it never be. No way. Well, why not? That's the second half of this section. Notice what he says. He says, may it never be for, verse 21, middle of verse 21, for if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. In other words, the, the law was not able to give life. It wasn't able to, to reverse the curse of Genesis 3 and bring the blessing to the world that God knew it needed for its healing and its restoration. The law couldn't do that. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, 
then indeed righteousness would have been based on the law. But that's not what the law did. Notice verse 22, but the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus the Messiah might be given to those who believe. The law didn't actually bring life, and thus righteousness isn't based on it. Instead, what the law did was it shut up all men under sin. It, it, it basically served like a jail keeper, and it marked out, here is sin, here is transgression, here is wrongdoing. And so the law enunciated transgression so that we're all accountable for our sin in order that we might receive the promised blessing of Abraham, not by doing the law, but by believing in Jesus the Messiah. That's his point. So the law led men to Christ. In the larger argument of Galatians then, how strange is it that some are trying to go back to the law uh, away from Christ when the whole point of the law was to be a temporary measure that was supposed to lead people to Christ. And so the law, the law isn't contrary to the promises. No, the law actually uh, works with the promise. The law doesn't contradict the promise. Rather, it cooperates with the promise. That's the way the law works. And so it was added on later in order to lead people to Christ and thus help fulfill the promise to Abraham. And in the next section, Paul is going to give additional details to exactly how the law did that, how the law worked for the promise, not against the promise, so that he doesn't prove too much, so that we see that the law is good and had a job to do. It just had a temporary job to do, and once its job was done, its day is over. That's where Paul is going to go in the following paragraph of Galatians chapter 3. So to wrap up this section, let me just offer kind of a concluding reflection by way of a question. And that question is this, how do you relate to God? Do you relate to God on the basis of law, or do you relate to God on the basis of promise? That is, is your relationship with God all about doing, keeping the law, if I'm good enough, then, if I obey enough, then God will? Or do you relate to God on the basis purely of a promise that you have received and believed? Specifically, the promise that in Christ, your sins are forgiven, new creation has come, and you are now a new creation in Christ simply because God wants to give that to you. And do you receive that as a promise that he has entrusted to you? Do you relate to God on the basis of keeping the rules or receiving a promise?